0: Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Marty Kendall. Marty Kendall is an engineer who seeks to optimize nutrition using a data-driven approach. Marty's interest in nutrition began 18 years ago to help his wife Monica better control her type 1 diabetes. Since then, he has developed a systematized approach to nutrition tailored for a wide range of goals, contexts, and preferences. He has developed programs such as nutrient optimizer and data-driven fasting to help guide thousands of people on their journeys towards optimal nutrition. Our conversation was extremely interesting and insightful. Marty's analytical approach to nutrition is one that I feel will become more commonly utilized in nutrition and dietetics in the coming decades. With an emphasis on nutrient density and whole foods, Marty and many of his colleagues have been able to help thousands of people lose weight and improve their health and well-being. The nutritional geometry and analytical approaches to nutrition are extremely interesting to me. Marty's approach is precisely the kind of non-dogmatic and open-minded venture that I feel is likely to be extremely valuable in nutrition research in the coming years. So with all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much for coming to speak with me today, Marty. Um, I've really been looking forward to this. Uh, You look like you're a real wealth of knowledge and uh, (laughs) listening to your stuff. It's uh, really quite an interesting take. Thank you. Thank you. I've always found it really interesting uh, listening to people who come outside of the nutrition and health space uh, Mm. who have gotten really into it um, because I think they bring such a fresh uh, and non-dogmatic perspective. And I think people like yourself have a lot to um, offer in this space. So I was just wondering what you thought the advantages of your engineering background have been on um, learning about nutrition and health.
1: Yeah, um, I'm just data driven and I believe the numbers and uh, and I've seen like we were talking about before, I've seen the, the role of belief in nutrition and growing up from a Gary Fetke introduced us and I had a chat with Belinda about they've dove down the, the rabbit hole of the role of the SDA church and religion on the nutritional paradigm and what we believe about nutrition. And I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist and, you know, since I've discovered Rob Wolf and Paleo, sort of my thinking changed about the world a lot since then, but um, I just understand how dominant belief and bias can be in nutrition not to mention you know um financial incentives so to be able to go okay what is true um i spent a couple of years trying to when when i realized what school fees had cost want to be a a a trader and you know developing trading systems and delving into all that and um you know, the numbers don't lie and, and and you know, hedge fund traders don't get paid based on their belief. They get paid on, you know, what actually returns dividends. So to be able to mine the data to work out what is actually legitimate and what actually works and what actually gets the results you want is uh, very important to me. And I think as an engineer, to be able to understand the different factors that influence Satiety and how much we eat, and our blood sugars and blood sugar stability, and getting off the blood sugar roller coaster, which is really important for you know my wife and my son who are, are both now type one diabetic. That's really important, but you know, uh, and I see that data all, every day on on my screen with blood sugars and and insulin oscillating as they eat, and um, I can. I can see the data and uh, I, I realise not everybody else can has access to that data or cares about that data or, you know, I have a mind that wants to say, you know, what are the factors and what are the biggest factors and what are, what are the most significant factors. So, yeah, I've just been on a on a mission for the last 10 years or so just trying to refine that thinking.
0: It seems fascinating to me because engineering and, and the mathematics that underpin it seems so black and white. Uh, yeah. Whereas nutrition seems to be this infinitely complex, you know, everyone's <laughs> different, um, you know, food's very we're all complex. all unique supplies. snowflakes
1: and, you know, it, it, and we're not, we're all
0: very similar in a lot of ways. So I, I was wondering whether you thought there were any shortcomings with such a black and white approach to um, a, a sort of a, an area that is, you know, more complex and diverse.
1: Yeah, uh, nutrition is definitely complex and diverse, and there are many, many factors that influence um, nutrition and why we choose to eat. But I suppose I've been on a mission to understand what are the biggest ones and what are the ones that uh, which ones aren't significant. So I suppose in that, uh, you know, looking at satiety and how much we eat and how much we eat without conscious restriction, it's you know macronutrients play the biggest role we, we basically um robin hydram simpson at university of sydney talked about the protein leverage hypothesis which has been demonstrated to uh, be you know work in, in you know from grasshoppers to slime to humans and all uh, uh not even mammals, but, you know, everybody chases protein. Then we eat enough energy until we get enough protein. And protein is definitely the most dominant factor in our satiety. So protein percentage, basically getting enough protein without too much energy. We need energy, we need energy from fat and carbs, but as we reduce the energy from fat and carbs, increase protein percentage, we tend to be more satiated. We eat less, but, you know, my analysis has dug down and, and and found that it's not just protein, it's really a micronutrient leverage hypothesis that I'm trying to get the ball rolling. And, that, you know, when you dig down, you see in multivariate ana- analysis, you see that potassium and calcium and sodium and you know, various vitamins also have statistically significant roles in how much we eat, how much we crave. We crave the nutrients we need and if the food we can we have access to doesn't contain enough of them we just keep on
0: eating more that's uh that's so interesting um i i really wanted to ask you this question because you're so data driven (laughs) how much do you think we really know about uh, nutrition and the way foods interact with um with our physiology
1: uh a lot less than we think i think um but but i suppose as an engineer you have to understand that there are limitations to your knowledge and you know from a a a medical perspective we start talking about insulin and uh, and ghrelin and leptin and pky when you you start talking about all these hormones that get very very complex and just Insulin looking at the, the low carb keto space over the last five or seven years have gone very, very wrong. All the doctors have misunderstood the role of insulin that, you know, eating carbs raises insulin. But, you know, unless you're injecting insulin, insulin is a is a following factor. Um that we insulin increases when we consume more energy than we need, and it just helps the Insulin is the signal to the kidney to uh, sorry, to the liver to hold on to the energy in our body when we keep on eating more energy than we need, unless we're injecting insulin, it doesn't make us fatter, it doesn't make us crave more energy. It's just a a storage hormone that holds everything back in storage. And when you look at just one hormone and how horrifically we've misunderstood that, when you start to look at all the other Hormones that are incredibly complex and interactive. I just don't think we've got any idea. But what we can do is say, what are the people that eat more or less eat? You know, what are the parameters of their food? What are the major parameters of their food that influence how much or how little they eat? and How can we mimic those? So again, going back to trading, you look at hey, what are the factors that of you know the people that make the most money, or, or you know, what are the characteristics of those people how do we imitate that and and mimic that behavior i I just don't think we can understand the complex biology completely to get a a conclusive system but if you look at the biggest levers then you can just imitate those and uh that works really well
0: i think that's why i like david rubenheimer's work so much because his work shows you know and i've been thinking about this a lot you know the something is more real uh, if it's real at multiple levels of analysis Mm. at the same time. So the Mm. fact that this trend, this protein leverage hypothesis is the same at basically every level of Mm. of biology, uh, that's really something you can hang your hat on when you're looking at nutrition. And I think we need to really start at these foundational uh, concepts first, and then we can work our way up and I, yeah, we. I got a lecture from him at uh, the University oh, really? of Sydney. Yeah, he's yeah. and he was very cool. And I, I read his yeah. book straight away, and I thought, this is this is really really powerful stuff. Yeah. Uh, and there's not enough people in nutrition talking about this because it, it mm. really does look like something that's genuinely foundational. It's built mm. into us. Uh, and mm. it's something that we can start from. It's a first principles approach, which is something I'm very interested in. Yeah, um, totally. I,
1: I had a great chat with Stephen and David and um, showed them all my stuff. And they said, have you done a multivariate analysis in that, Marty? And I went, oh, okay, I, I was about to extract more data from Nutrient Optimizer. And now I've got 125,000 days of data from 35,000 people. And yeah, I went and did a multivariate analysis. And it's not just protein. Protein is definitely the biggest factor. But it's all the other minerals and vitamins that also play a role that if you're not getting adequate amounts of them, you crave those and go out and seek more of them. So, yeah, for me it's how do you find the the simplest solution to get the nutrients you need without excess calories and then you're satiated and then so many other things work out from there. It just all falls into place Protein's definitely number one, but everything else is just, you know, a little bit additive improvement.
0: Occam's razor. It, uh, yeah. It's a,
1: it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Oh, I think it's definitely simple. And um, yeah, I can't wait for more people to
0: understand it. That's why yeah. I keep banging on about it. <laughs> you you mentioned insulin before, and I really want to jump onto that because I think yep. there's such an emphasis on blood glucose, what's your blood glucose level, we've got to track your blood glucose. And I think whilst that is important, particularly yep. for people at risk of metabolic um, complications, yep. uh, insulin tracking insulin is something that's not really talked about. We're not talked yeah. about uh, when we're not taught about insulin response that much, um, yep. particularly, you know, uh, in, in uh, my course, we didn't really learn mm. anything about um, insulin and and particularly its impact on um Things like cancer growth and yep. um, and yeah, the way it impacts our metabolic health. So, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how insulin impacts our metabolic health.
1: Yeah, um, that's another one of my pet topics. Um, and you're in Sydney. Did you go to the University of Sydney for nutrition, I, or
0: uh, I was I was doing my uh, masters there.
1: Okay, yeah, and, and some of the best research in the insulin response to food or the best insulin uh, work has been done there with the food insulin index with Jenny Bren Miller and Suzanne Holt back in 1997. And as a, um, you know, my wife is type one since she was 10 and uh, my son became type one in December, tested his blood sugar randomly and found he had a really high, you know, blood sugar of 25 and it's like wow i ended up with an a1c of 14 so yeah now he's on insulin and um, doing great and put 40 or 50 kilos on his deadlift and trying to set a an under 18 powerlifting record for deadlift so yeah insulin is very close to my heart but back then when I started looking into all this, um, came across Jason Fung, and he mentioned the food insulin index, and started delving into it. And the research done back then, they they fed um, a range of different foods in a study sponsored by Kellogg's um, to look at the insulin response over four, over three hours. So they, you know, glucose spiked your blood sugars, and they came crashing back down. Jelly beans went even more, and then you know fat and other foods had a much more stable insulin response. So the the intuitive solution to stabilize my wife's blood sugars and stop her having to inject so much insulin to, to get off the blood sugar roller coaster was to, to go for a, a lower carb, higher fat diet, which has worked really, really well. Um, but then you find that protein also has about a 50% insulin response compared to carbohydrates. So over three hours and fat over three hours, just that has nothing. Um, but then when you keep going down that rabbit hole, you end up drinking olive oil and MCT oil and butter and you go, wait up. There's not a lot of nutrition, there's not a lot of nutrients or satiety or protein value in these foods. And the more I, you know, dug and dug and dug, I realized that again, protein has a, a massive positive response to satiety. And really that the dominant insulin that my wife and my son need to take, about 80% of their daily insulin requirement, is whether they eat or not. Like on a, on a lower carbohydrate diet. Um, you know, much more than half the insulin they require has got nothing to do whether they eat or not. It's just to stop their body disintegrating. So I suppose the I think the biggest realisation for me there is that if you want to reduce your insulin, you need to not be as fat. You need to be smaller. The bigger you are, the more insulin you need to hold back all your stored energy in storage and just trying to, only manage the insulin response to the food you eat is only a bit player. I think that's something I've been trying to bang on to the keto community for the last few years of just saying, look, insulin's important, but you know the upstream issue is energy toxicity. That if you've got too much energy on board, your insulin levels are going to be high as a result of all the stored energy you've got in your adipose uh, in your adipose tissue. Short term fluctuations in insulin is really just like trying to measure the volume of the ocean by the by looking at the, the height of the waves on a calm day. It, it, you, you're not really looking at the, the important factor, which is your energy toxicity. So if you wanna reduce your overall insulin demand, you need to reduce you know, how much body fat you're holding by modifying satiety. So satiety is definitely the major factor, um, but having stable blood sugars, within a healthy range, maybe raising by maybe 1.6 millimole per liter after you eat, is definitely a good thing to get off that to not have your blood sugars crash. But the most important thing is to, you know, focus on high satiety, nutrient-dense foods that'll bring your overall energy down, which will have a consequence of lowering
0: insulin. Yeah, I I think there's there's a lot more that needs to be um, a lot more of this information that needs to be spread uh, surrounding insulin because I think it's it's really goes hand in hand with measuring and monitoring uh, the glucose as well. And um, I I haven't delved into this too much, but I do remember uh, seeing a paper a few years ago where they were measuring insulin responses, um, and they did one with white rice and then they did the same white rice with uh tuna and the insulin response was bigger when the two were mixed together which uh i guess from at least the way that i was taught in university it was a little bit counterintuitive um but it made me think you know there are quite marked differences in glucose responses um between Different people, you know, people respond very differently to different foods, and I was just wondering if those responses, if insulin responses, are equally um, diverse between people, or are they fairly uniform, um, depending? or oh, fairly uniform for the same type of foods for for more people. Um,
1: yeah, people try to. There's a lot of interest these days in trying to interpret the. Crystal ball or the Ouija board of your CGM, um, which is interesting. Like people are getting fast, fascinated by the continuous glucose monitor, and you know the glucose goddess is talking about if you eat this food first and then that food, then you can have your your fries if you eat your beans first, or some weird combination of different foods. But um, I mean, the the Zoe study did a, a Zoe who you know look at the gut microbiome and trying to use glucose as an indicator of uh, controlling glucose with your gut microbiome. Barron's study actually found that the biggest factor in your insulin response is, you know, the level of obesity that you have and, secondly, the, the, the macro composition of the food you're eating. So if you've got more stored energy, in storage, then basically if you think of it from an oxidative priority point of view, that your body fat is the largest storage fuel tank in your body and then upstream you've got glucose in your blood and your your liver, your, your blood glucose and your glycogen and then you've got you know, alcohol and ketones right upstream, basically the rocket fuel that have to be burnt off. If you've got a whole lot of excess fat and storage then the glucose is sort of just backed up in the system that needs to be burnt off first so if you have a high carb meal it's going you're going to see a much larger rise not because carbs are the only bad thing you can eat it's because your body fat is you know over full and there's no flux to allow um you know that that backup of fuel to be dissipated so if you've got over full fat stores, you're going to see a much bigger glucose rise. So, you know, the biggest factors that are going to inf- influence your blood sugar and insulin response to food is just, you know, how much fat you storing, how much, you know, what's your waist to height ratio. I think rather than delving into continuous insulin monitors, which will make people even more confused than watching their continuous glucose monitors, it's just, you know, get out your tape measure and measure your waste. if it's greater than 0.5 then it's time to dial back the energy from fat and or carbs so and prioritize you know amino acids protein and vitamins and minerals with less energy and then that'll help you stabilize your blood sugars and insulin without having to micromanage that as much
0: yeah, that's a I think that's a really great again. We're going to these foundational principles, people mm. getting caught up in the minutia too much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we have this
1: data-driven fasting course and some people we encourage people just to use a simple glucometer, test your blood sugar to validate your hunger, and then eat when the the glucose fuel tank drops down. But a lot of people come in with the uh, continuous glucose meters because they're the coolest thing on the block. And those people just get confused and caught up in trying to interpret, you know, I had a coffee, you know, it raised my glucose by three points. Do I, you know, and is that going to make me fat or I I sneezed or, I, you know, did a workout or, you know, is that going to make me fat? it's like, no, 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 stop trying to manage the minutia and look at the big rocks first. And that's where, you know, the engineering mindset is, you know, what's the most significant thing you can look at? manage that parameter and everything else will fall into place
0: yeah i think this is a great place to um switch into i think this is another passion of yours uh, which is nutrient nutrient density and um i'm I'm going to try and make it very clear that what we're talking about is um when we say nutrient density is nutrients per bite not nutrients per calorie and i think that's Uh, yeah, you
1: can look at it both ways, but yeah, you can look at nutrients per serving and nutrients per calorie.
0: Yeah, I I, I don't particularly like the whole calorie kill model because I'm not yep. a calorimeter. Um, <laughs> and you know, sure, sure. And you know, personally, you know, I've I've been very thin all of my life, and it doesn't matter how much I ate, I'm I'm never putting on any weight. Yeah, so at hey, least, you're at, right. least yeah. at the moment, genetically so, blessed. Yeah, well, I, I could I could you know have. Six thousand calories a day, and and probably lose weight. You know, the, I think there's just so much more going on. Yeah. Um, so it, it may think, not work for you in twenty years, but maybe, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> I'm lucky. You know, I think that's a really big problem with young people is they can their bodies are so robust they can just put up with absolute neglect, yeah. and it really yeah. leads them astray yeah. later on. Catches uh, up with them. <laughs> yeah, but I think nutrients per bite. Uh, that's that's yeah. really. Yeah, you know, that's the most practical way to go yep. about this. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on getting basically the minimal effective dose. How do you get everything you need with the fewest amount of, um, you know, bites or, you know, how do you, how do you satisfy your needs without having to eat, you know, an extraordinary amount of food? Yeah. Um, Going back to the the data analysis,
1: we've um, looked at the the satiety impact of different foods. So, looking at, you know, if you eat, to be honest, it is nutrients per uh, each nutrient per calorie or percentage of energy, um, because that is the way, you know, you can't equivalent bites of spinach versus bites of steak. But you look at the satiety response to each nutrient from protein, fat, carbs. Um, and then all the all the minerals and you can see the point that is achievable with whole food that provides the lowest satiety response. And you look at protein, you know, a high percentage protein will, you know, if you go from 10% to 55% protein, which is really hard to do, um, most people can't but eventually your body goes, give me energy. I just want the pizza. I don't want the egg whites and uh, the chicken breast anymore, thanks. Um, but if you do that, you, you're dropping your calorie intake by 55%. People who eat um, a high percentage of protein massively drop the calorie intake. Carbs going from, you know, 45% down to, say, 15% will have a similar sort of a f- drop of um. and fat going from 70% to about 30 or 40% will also drop your calorie intake. So that's the, the biggest factor, but, uh, we, we aren't a bomb calorimeter and, you know, like just to touch on that point, um, Carbs and fat are basically carbon-carbon bonds that break down and release energy in our body, which is great. Um, Protein really doesn't work as a simple fuel source. Your body hates using protein for energy. So it's not completely a free food and it can be converted to ATP or eventually fat, but it's really hard for your body to take amino acids and turn it into um, ATP or, or you know through de novo lipogenesis turn it into fat. It really wants, you know, most people don't eat enough protein to give their body what it needs to build muscles and build neurotransmitters and so many things that um, amino acids do in the body. So when you look at um, nutrients per calorie, it's really dialing back the energy from fat and carbs that metabolize similarly but at different rates. But then, yeah, when you can do the same sort of process that I talked about with all the other nutrients as well and you see a definite trend for most of them that once you get more potassium per calorie or more calcium per calorie we tend to eat less but where that gets confounded is where the food system says you know oh no we're uh, you know we're refining our food so much it's just this mush of um Refined sugar, refined oils and uh, refined grains, but we're not actually getting nutrients. So then they go, let's dump all this synthetic fortified nutrients into the food system. And it seems that that hasn't helped us. And we tend to eat more of those processed foods that have got the fortification in them. We basically go, oh yeah, we're not I'm, I'm not bored of the the wheat puffs because they're fortified. I'm not going to go searching for those nutrients in the fish and meat and veggies that actually contain them naturally. I'll just keep on showing down on this low satiety breakfast cereal or whatever processed food that's in the centre aisles of our supermarket that we design to make us overeat them for, for profit.
0: Um, from your analysis of um, all of this information, what have you seen are the most difficult uh, micronutrients to reach an adequate level of?
1: Yeah, potassium is the is the biggest, strongest factor. Um, you know, it's it's a nutrient of concern, um, and we're just not getting enough in our food system. Basically, the the soils are very depleted through use over and over again with massive amounts of fertilizers and and modern agricultural me- methods that have depleted our soils of potassium so they're not in the grains and we're definitely not eating the the green non-starchy veggies that actually contain nutrients like potassium and magnesium and everything else that we need um, but there's no single nutrient for everybody or it's really a matter of you know what are you currently eating if you're a, a plant-based vegan you've got different nutrient requirements compared to a you know Hardcore carnivore at the other end of the, the spectrum. Different people have different cravings for different nutrients that will better satisfy the appetite and make them more satiated.
0: Yeah, I, I often wonder about magnesium um, because, yeah. particularly on on a you know maybe a more paleo or um, more ketogenic or uh, more meat based diet um i i from what i understand it's quite difficult to get enough magnesium even if you're even if you're prioritizing uh plant foods again uh, because of the particularly because of soil degradation um modern agricultural practices but Mm. also there's a bioavailability issue as well Mm. particularly with plant foods Mm. um so uh, do you have a particular uh, way of dealing with uh, magnesium uh, in the diet and i have come yeah. to i've come to think that the best way to get it is uh through water and um that's yeah. where i like to to get mine uh as much yeah, as i can
1: yeah filtered water in the past we would have been drinking water from natural streams which would naturally contain a lot of nutrients naturally um yeah like on the magnesium probably there's magnesium calcium ratios and different ratios with magnesium we tend to see definitely potassium calcium and, and then magnesium as a still powerful but a, a bit player compared to to calcium calcium is even more important i think a lot of people aren't getting enough dairy products these days to get enough calcium in their diet and like you say the bioavailability of Calcium from purely plant based foods. It's not as great due to a number of other factors. Um, but yeah, what, what we do in the Nutrient Optimizer is just get people to track their food, and then um, Nutrient Optimizer will say, hey, these are the foods and meals that we can, that contain more of those that cluster of harder to find nutrients that you currently need. So it's not just, you know, everybody is, oh, I'm going to prioritize magnesium, so I'm going to eat this plant or take this supplement. It's like, which cluster of five nutrients do you need to prioritize at the moment and which foods actually contain them, which meals, which recipes actually contain them. So, um, yeah, if you just think in terms of one nutrient at a time, you end up, you know, having a massive box of pills that you bought on eBay that you never use or give you diarrhea and they end up flushed out in the toilet with brightly colored pee or diarrhea. But if, um, you get the the nutrients you need from whole food. They're in the form that your body understands and they work synergistically together from the whole food that's ideally produced in in an environment that's healthy and robust and um, giving back to the world rather than depleting the world and not so reliant on fossil fuels, which are, um, as we speak, becoming more and more expensive. Yeah, yeah.
0: Something I found really interesting, uh, that when I was speaking to Gary, that, that he stressed, uh, it really sort of crystallized in my mind, um, the, the days following was that the way, um, the way that uh, someone with metabolic syndrome or, or type two diabetes, um, the way that their body treats these macronutrients is very different than someone who is metabolically healthy. Um, so that makes me wonder, is there a, is there a plan, you know, clearly there, there has to be some change uh, over time with the protocols that you're using, with the dietary Definitely. patterns that you're using. Um, do, you, do you often have to reassess as people become more metabolically healthy, as they're implementing mm. more nutrient-dense foods, they may be imp- implementing, you know, intermittent fasting, they're becoming more metabolically healthy. Will, yeah, their, definitely. will their approach have to change, and in what time frame do you normally see that happen? Yeah, um, I
1: suppose first on the approach, I think, like I've probably got a bias here from living with two type one diabetics, but if your blood sugar is on a massive roller coaster, the first priority is to not be overfilling your glucose fuel tank. If if your blood sugar is rising significantly all the time by You don't want to keep it flatline because that requires just living on refined oils and fat, but you want to dial back the refined carbohydrate or have less processed carbohydrate to the point that your blood sugars sort of rise by less than 30 milligrams per deciliter or 1.6 millimoles so that's sort of a nice healthy range where your blood sugars don't come crashing back down. And you feel really hungry because when you get lower than what you used to because you've tried really hard to be good and deprive your body and fast and fast longer than somebody on Facebook and get high ketones and you can win the, you know, I've got a 3.5 ketone value and look at me, aren't I really smart? Then you just face down on the donuts and, um, you know, you're reading Mark Matheson's book at the moment and you talk to Sachin Panda and they do experiments in lab rats Um, and and mice, but they have consistent food You just give them the same rat chow, but we have this access to whatever we want. We're not going to choose the the chicken breast and egg whites and broccoli when we've fasted for three days. We're going to be reaching for the most energy-dense nutrient-poor food we can. So um, that's where blood sugar is really important to make sure you stabilize it and you don't get that crash to the point that you end up making really poor food choices when you eat again because your blood sugar has dropped too low. So that's the, the carb component. Don't overdo the carbs and eat again before your blood sugar crashes too low. But then, I mean, protein is always important. Then you start to focus on are you getting enough protein? And most people um, see their blood sugar drop after they have a high protein meal but if you're severely insulin resistant you don't have enough insulin in your body to to stop gluconeogenesis the protein you're eating is converting to glucose and not available for all the other functions in your body like building muscle. so your body's going to go you know i need more protein so the the keto crowd response is, you know, gluconeogenesis is bad, so I need to avoid protein to stabilize my blood sugars. But if your protein's turning into glucose in your bloodstream rapidly and you're seeing a rise after you eat, you, you actually need to become less insulin resistant by dialing back the dietary fat and prioritizing more protein. So that's sort of an incremental approach. Then once you get enough protein, it's like, let's dial back the dietary fat to the point that, it's you're satiated but it's sustainable but then once you actually get to a a healthy waist to height ratio you feel healthy your body fat's at a good level good level your blood sugars are healthy then hey it's time to bring back the energy from carbs and fat so you can get on the bike and lift weights and get strong so yeah that's sort of the the process we want you to get to a a healthy waist to height, body fat level, healthy blood sugars in a sustainable manner. But then at that point, let's um, let's bring back the energy from carbs and fat because extreme nutrient density, extremely high nutrient density has the problem that your calorie intake is extremely low because you just can't overeat those foods. So eventually it becomes excessive and you have to bring back the energy but it's all about finding that balance point for different people based on the current metabolic health
0: yeah i I really like that approach because you know i i feel like a lot of people think i just never need to i i need to never eat carbs and 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 that'll that'll solve the problem well maybe maybe it's it might help you get to a place where you can tolerate those things again and you can benefit from all the all the great things that they have to they have to offer. Yeah, um, it's a matter of dialing back
1: the once you dial back your body fat, then the carbs, the glucose is going to be backed up in your system. Because you know, the reason why you can't tolerate carbs is you've got too much fat in storage. So your body's too, always busy burning off the carbohydrate you eat and you see that in your bloodstream fluctuating because you've got too much fat on board.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted to switch gears a little bit. I I believe you're um, aware of Dr. Joel Fuhrman uh, using what he calls a nutritarian diet. Um, A few years ago, he, and I I may be wrong on some of the specifics, but I think I'm correct um, in in the majority of, of what I've heard, that he's published a paper uh, showing reversal of type 1 diabetes, I think, in a 15-year-old boy. They, it was late onset. They caught it very quickly, and he used his approach, and they uh, he, he no longer needs insulin. Um I'm trying to get in contact with Joel to talk about this because the paper's behind a paywall and I can't get my hands on it. So it's a bit annoying for me because I actually just want to read, read the paper and see what what the specifics are. But um, I was just wondering on what were you aware of, of this paper and, and what your thoughts were on it?
1: Uh, I haven't read that paper, very aware of Joel Furman. He's done some really good work, but again, going back to the bias thing, he's very much from a a plant-based approach and his aggregate nutrient density index score was sort of initially part of my inspiration for developing the the nutrient density approach. But when you look at his approach, it omits all amino acids, omega-3 and a bunch of other nutrients and then prioritises a bunch of, uh, you know, quite obscure nutrients or food properties that aren't quantified for anything but a a few plant-based foods. So, of course, your your lettuce and your broccoli score very highly. So what I did, I sort of went, hey, let's take that approach in a way, but let's look at the 34 essential nutrients that we've got good quantified data and, um, you know, look at – it's more – approach so you, you don't end up with a you know, protein extreme protein or extreme plant-based approach to sort of get a, a good spectrum of all the nutrients at the same time um, but on the on the type one approach there's um, some guys uh, mastering diabetes have you heard of mastering diabetes yeah they're they're interesting they're also from a, a plant-based approach and that's you know, I spent a fair bit of time in the in the plant based groups and headspace, and they they definitely have good results on that extreme. And it's like, well, how how can that be? So when you see, you know, my home is probably in the low carb type one diabetes. Dr. Bernstein gets some amazing results from a, a protein centric um, lower carb approach. But those guys also get good responses as well. And when you look at the, the carbohydrate satiety response, you see that if you get to a, a very, very high carb, low fat dietary approach, it's really hard to overeat those foods. Like if you go low carb, 10 to 15% net carbs, it's hard to overeat those foods, especially if you dial back the fat and whatever you got, you got protein left. But if you go to the other extreme and dial back the fat, and go very high carbohydrate you also get a fairly satiating response so if you're trying to eat it's quite hard to overeat you know fresh fruit and fresh veggies and nothing else and and that's a a great version of a whole food plant-based diet but what triggers me about the the plant-based community is that as long as it's vegan and doesn't have any animal products then it's good to go so you know, you you watch game changes and there's no mention of nutrient density or, you know, vegetables even. And so, you know, everything in the aisles of the supermarkets that's designed to sell is a combination of industrial vegetable oils, sugar, and uh, refined starch with flavours and colours and, and fortification that, you know, we just keep on eating too much of those foods. So, to, to wrap that up, if you do end up on a on a very high-carb, low-fat diet that I would argue probably doesn't have enough protein to provide adequate muscle mass, um, you probably are going to eat a lot less and therefore your insulin requirements are going to be lower. So it's not about... Um, necessarily, the going back to the previous, previous discussion, it's not about the insulin response to the food you're eating. It's about that diet is impossible to overeat because you've gone so extreme on the carbs and so low on the fat, you just can't overeat those foods. Thurman talks about eating three heads of lettuce and that's breakfast or whatever. So, you know, those foods are really hard to overeat Now, are going to be quite filling um, and therefore you're going to have a very low insulin requirement because your body fat levels are going to shrink quite significantly, and therefore your insulin requirement is going to be lower. You're going to rest your pancreas, and um, a newly diagnosed honeymooning honeymooning type 1 diabetic is going to be able to produce enough insulin to keep up with that diet.
0: Uh, That's really interesting because I I wanted to ask you about those guys from... Uh, master Diabetes uh, because their approach is uh, quite unique and uh, it it does appear to uh, yield some positive results. But I think the thing that's really interesting for me is that uh, it's kind of a one size fits all, uh, and I I've been really interested in the effect of environment uh, on uh, how it how it affects uh, the foods that we eat and uh, the way that they react with that physiology, um, I, you know, I certainly doesn't seem appropriate from from my perspective to tell someone to eat, you know, mangoes and and pomelos if they live in Sweden um, to reverse their type one diabetes. Uh, it just it to, in my mind it doesn't make sense that those people should be eating, you know, uh, moose and and lots of fish and um, you know cabbage yeah. and and uh, seasonal tubers. So what's what's yeah. your what's your take on the role of environmental factors in the way um, we actually deal uh, metabolically with the food that we eat? Yeah,
1: um, another interesting rabbit hole. I think you need to be able to comprise a, a healthy diet wherever you live. And if you're just getting nutrients, you should be able to do that wherever. So you don't need a, you know, wh- what we're doing is, Eat Lancet and the, the 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 mainstream food system is saying this is our diet that we make money of from agricultural products that are you know the, the fertilizer company and uh, you know pesticide company and uh, the big food company are all sort of getting together to say this is the the diet that has the lowest impact on the planet and therefore we should export it to the whole world but you know, the reason why it has the lowest impact on the planet is it's just fueled from fossil fuel fertilizers that go into the fertilizer and once you take that into account and the loss of biodiversity in topsoil then uh, it's, it's a diabolically short Term approach to nutrition, and once fuel prices increase, once hypothetically we can't get gas from China to make our fossil fuel fertilizers, the price of that type of food is going to skyrocket and is going to be unaffordable. And if we're living, if we're relying on an industrialized food system that relies on inputs of non renewable resources, then that degrade the topsoil and degrade biodiversity we're going to be in a lot of trouble and yeah one of my big passions with nutrient density is if you the most nutritious food that naturally contains the nutrients that you require is grown in a healthy microbiome in the soil because it's got ecological diversity of you know plants and animals and bugs and Microbes in in the soil that are fueled by you know this that and the other and it, it, it's a matter of bringing. It's not a matter of animals versus plants. It's a matter of bringing animals and plants back together, to grow them in a similar way that nature did ten thousand years ago, without the input of um, exogenous energy from. Natural gas that's fueling our fertilizers that's making them grow overnight, but depleting everything in our environment at a massively rapid rate. So, um yeah, I mean, we've got people in Sweden eating, you know, horse and you know, wacky cod liver and you know, extreme things, and people in Africa eating weirdly extreme things, and vegetarians, you know, thriving as well and making a nutrient nutrient dense diet in their environment going back to the the mastering diabetes uh, i'm not sure you can make a highly nutrient dense diet without supplements off mangoes and veggies you get plenty of potassium and magnesium and maybe some calcium it's arguable whether it's bioavailable but your selenium and zinc and and especially amino acids. And, you know, when I look at my son at the moment who's in that similar honeymooning period with type 1 diabetes, I'm throwing as much insulin at him as I can to get his blood sugars into the healthy range and giving him a ton of protein. And um, he's thriving. He's a, he's a unit. He's huge and he's strong and uh, he's growing and he's getting stronger and stronger. And I look at some of those kids who are on, you know, I get, People send me stuff on Facebook, and and you see, you know, um, Charlie's off his insulin, um, or doesn't need much insulin. But look at him; he's he's not a thriving kid. He's a skinny, you know, some would say malnourished-looking kid that looks like he should be growing and powering on. But you see the same thing on the other extreme with the uh, paleo ketogenic diet guys. They're you know minimizing protein and just giving them fat, which is a a very low insulinogenic diet, but those kids aren't growing and thriving and getting stronger. You know, eat eat for eat for vitality. Eat for do I feel good? Do I perform well? Do I look good? Do I do I you know am I optimally sexually you know is that all working for me? Are my hormones powering on the way that um, a hunter gatherer would have ten thousand years ago that would have continued the species? Don't. Yeah. Anyway, lots of tangent rants, but I'll stop there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's all, it's all relevant and it's all, it's all tied in. And, uh, I think that's such a great story about your son. I think, um, Mm. you know, if there's, if there's one thing to take away,
1: from and i like what you what you just said there you know and his a1c has gone from 14.4 to 5.2 it's just you know he's he's thriving and he's you wouldn't you look at him you wouldn't he's stronger than he was three months ago he's performing so much better because he's got the insulin his body needs that his own pancreas wasn't able to produce because of his mum's autoimmune condition but you know Slam the insulin, give them heaps of insulin. Insulin is not to be feared if you require insulin as a problem if you're injecting it because you're too fat. And if you inject too much insulin, your blood sugar is going to plummet, you're going to get hungry. But everybody else fearing insulin um, yeah, and avoiding, especially if they're avoiding protein because it's got an insulin agentic response is barking up the wrong tree.
0: I imagine it would have been pretty magic um, to see the, the A1C numbers come down and just oh, you know, that, that feeling. It's a beautiful yes. thing. Yeah.
1: It's a beautiful thing. And now his pancreas is getting a rest and able to produce more of his own insulin and we're dropping back the insulin more. But initially it was like, let's drown him in insulin and, uh, you know, 50, 60 units of insulin a day. His mum's on 20 or 30. But, um, you know, he's a growing kid and he needs insulin to grow. So Yeah.
0: That's um that's a really awesome story. I, I love when you can, you can hear success stories like that. Mm. And, you know, it's I think really when when it comes down to it, the most important reason to take care of ourselves is so that we can you know contribute and and give back. And mm. and when mm. we're really taking care of ourselves like this, we give ourselves the best chance to uh, live up to our potential. Um, mm. Which is why I've, I'm just so obsessed with um talking to as many people as i can because um yeah hopefully we can actually help some people you know yeah. get their health back
1: yeah i mean that's a rewarding thing is just seeing when people just go hey you know let's look at my blood sugars and dialing that in and using that to tame my intermittent fasting rate reg- regime or dialing in macros or if they want to go to the next step darling in micro is it, it just it really works. It's not magic. It's not easy, but it really, really works if you do it consistently.
0: Fantastic, man. I think that's a, a great, you know, happy place to end uh, uh, this, this conversation. Um, I couldn't think of a better way to finish it with such a great story. Um, yeah. I just want to, want to thank you so much for um, coming to chat with me Um but is there where where can people find out find your work and, and support you?
1: Yeah, um, we've got optimizing nutrition is the website so optimizingnutrition.com, and then we've got a few products with data-driven fasting that uses blood sugars to dial in when to eat, and it also helps you guide what to eat. And then macros are really confusing, so we just created a macros masterclass four weeks to help people understand, start where they are and just tweak it a little bit to get sustainable outcomes, which works really well. And then if they want to level up to the ultimate level of nutrition, um, we've got a micros masterclass, which helps people dial in the micronutrients with real food and throw out all those expensive supplements, which, yeah, works really well. So it's it's a whole lot of fun, as you say, the results of what
0: makes it all worth it. So, yeah,
1: really enjoy seeing that movement growing.
0: I'll make sure I uh, put links to all of your stuff in the show notes so that people can access it from there. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. This has been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Take no, it easy. Of fun. Thanks, <laughs> Cameron. Great to chat. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it and hopefully you learned something from it. If you'd like to keep up with Marty's work, I've put links in the episode notes so that you can get to his website directly. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify and YouTube, and you can leave up to a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is a simple, no-cost way to support my work and help me reach more listeners. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Take care.